Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a wide range of genres, and you can play them on just about any digital listening device in your possession, whether it's an iPhone, a Kindle, an Android, you name it. And here's the deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial. Go get the best erotica of 2011. Or how about orgasmic, erotica for women, if that's your thing. Otherwise, go get Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen or uh, How to Meditate by Pema Chodron. Any one of these titles can be yours free of charge. And if you do this, if you go get the freebie, it helps the program. I get a few nickels. It's a nice thing to do. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a terrific deal. It is available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. All right, right. folks, here we right. go again. This is it. This is other people. This is essentially spontaneous. This is broadcast from an apartment building. Thank you for being here. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for giving me your attention. I appreciate it. It's good to be with you. I am uh, busy. I've been busy this week. Lots of things have been happening. The Olympics are now happening. Not sure if you're aware of that. The 33rd Olympiad is unfolding. Uh, the greatest athletes in the world, or some of the greatest athletes in the world, are gathered in London, and they are competing for gold. And so it makes me think about book people and how book people typically don't have athletic ability, or at least not world-class athletic ability. And one of the things that I've uh, been pondering as I watch these Olympics begin is how much uh, I would love to be a world-class sprinter, to have foot speed. I've never had foot speed uh, of any kind, much less world-class foot speed. And so I sit here wondering... My God, what would it be like to be able to run as fast as Usain Bolt, the Jamaican sprinting champion, to be able to run at, I believe, 28 miles an hour? I think that's how fast the guy can run. He can run 100 meters in nine seconds or something like that. And so here's my question. This is, what, this is what's been bothering me. If you're that gifted, if you're that lightning fast, 
Your last name is Bolt. You're the fastest man in the world. You're the fastest man on planet Earth. Uh, it's got to be so much fun to run. It's got to be thrilling to have that kind of talent and to be able to move your body at such high speeds. And yet you almost never see the guy or any of those uh, you know, sprinters, you almost never see them doing it at anything but sanctioned events. The only time you ever see these people running is in stadiums on tracks. And I don't get it because if I could run that fast, I feel like I would run everywhere. I would be in public sprinting for no reason. I would be running through shopping malls just to freak people out. And uh, it really would freak people out because if you've ever seen these sprinters run in person, you know how unbelievably fast they really do move. And, uh, you know, it's astonishing. You, you, You can't believe it. And yet it never happens publicly among civilians. It's always in a controlled environment. And I guess what I'm saying is I want to see world-class sprinters sprinting on sidewalks. I want to see them hurtling over cars. I want to see gymnasts doing flips in fast food restaurants. I want to see people pole vaulting over buildings. I want to see some shot putting. I want to bring the Olympics to the streets. Uh, Yeah. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So anyway, my guest today is Sheila Hetty. Uh, I'm very excited to have her on the program. She's a very gifted writer, and uh, she's the interviews editor over at The Believer magazine. And her latest book, uh, it's her second novel. It's causing quite a stir. It's called How Should a Person Be? And it calls itself a novel from life. It is available right now in the United States from Henry Holt after originally being published up in Canada, which is uh, Sheila's native land. So without any further ado, I figure we should get this thing rolling. I will stop talking. I will get out of the way. This is my conversation with Sheila Hetty. Her book is called How Should a Person Be? I guess in the very beginning, I had left Toronto just to get a break from the city. It's the city of my birth, so I needed, every once in a while, I need a break. And um, while I was away, I was in Montreal for six months, and that's kind of where I started thinking about, uh, I guess my first clear thought was, what if I write a book where I don't think about style, if I don't think about the style of the sentences? Um, So that that was one of the first things I remember thinking about it. Uh, and I don't know why that seemed important, but it did to me. Well, you just wanted to, I mean, you mean it from like the, a freeing perspective, like, you know, cause like, how would you even do that? You know, like, I don't know, like not even freeing it. It didn't feel free to me. It just felt weird, you know, like don't pay attention to that thing that you've spent 
10 years trying so hard to pay attention to. Like, there's other things to pay attention to. So I just wanted to see, I think I wanted to think about other things, like meaning and why are you writing this? Like, with my other books, I haven't thought about why are you writing this so much. Uh, and so, okay, and so then in terms of, like, practice, in terms of the actual mechanics of writing the book, like, how did it differ? Uh, was the, I mean, you, you obviously had different thoughts in your head as you approached the work, but then how did the actual physical writing of the book differ from past books? Well, I didn't know where I was going at all. Um, I, uh, I didn't know where I was going. I had to amass material for a thing that I didn't know. I didn't have, like, a picture in my head of what it would one day resemble. I think with my previous book, Tickner, like, I had this sort of picture in my head of what what I, and I was going for that picture, but I didn't have that in this case. It was just all a process. Um, and so I had to, I had to generate material in lots of different ways, um, uh, for this, for this thing that also didn't at first even have a structure. It was really weird, um, because not until probably three years in did, did I even as- begin to assemble, assemble the, patches of material and and then there was no narrative it was just you know seven different blocks that were kind of unconnected and then the next four years or three years had to be drawing them together in some way so there's an there's an incredible I mean, there's always an incredible amount of uncertainty when you're writing something long form you know but this sounds like there it sounds like you had to deal with quite a bit of that yeah, and I was just uncertain. I was at an uncertain place in my life, so there was like uncertainty <laughs> resonating at every level. Um, but I mean, in retrospect, it seems like it was an exciting time. But at the time, it didn't feel exciting. It just felt kind of bewildering. I mean, when you pull something off, like I, I managed to finish it, like that to me is pulling it off. Then you feel like that was all really directed, you know. But at the time, I didn't. I was just like, this is never going to. I don't know how this is ever going to work. Um, so that's, yeah, that, and I wasn't really able to, I was just like burning through whatever money I'd ever saved. Uh, so that was also another complicating, anyways. (laughs) It just adds a layer to the fun. It's great when you're like completely uncertain in your creative life for years on end and blowing through your life savings. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah. But I kind of felt like, I, I I was working I was work I I I kind of meant it like I had this feeling like well I really there was something that I knew there was something that I knew I just can't really put my finger on what. Well, you mean you mean like you you knew kind of like you knew what you were doing even though you didn't know what you were doing. Yeah, yeah, and I can't say like I can't really locate where that what the nature of that knowing is or what the object of that knowing was, but there definitely was that that chord. Well. Um, well, and it also, it's also a book and, and, uh, like the process of writing it and then the finished product, it seems to grapple with form. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it seems, yeah. to, you, it calls itself a novel from life. I mean, it, it makes that distinction right there in the top, in, in the title. I got that right. Correct. It's not sitting in yes. front of me. Yeah. That's, that's what they're calling it. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, like it's just, uh, it seems to kind of like, you know, bridge the divide between nonfiction and fiction. And it seems to do uh, things like it makes me think of David Shields and reality hunger. You know what I'm saying? Like this is a book that seems to reflect what he was getting at with that book. And I don't know if you read that and had any, if it had any influence, but it it just seems like sometimes, you know, regardless, there are these synergies. Um, and it it feels like kind of like a part of that somehow. Yeah. I read that pretty close to the end. So it was, it was nice. It was, 
it was nice to see somebody else thinking, you know, about similar things. But I think that I think that I was thinking actually less about reality and more about self-help and books that address the reader's life directly. Um, so that's, you know, I was thinking about all sorts of art that, like relational aesthetics and these kinds of things that I wanted the book to be like that. I wanted it to be like uh, a self-help book in the sense that it addressed the reader uh, directly, <laughs> whereas fiction addresses the, the subject of the fiction. Right, um, right. And I think the book, yeah, I don't know. It never says you. It never comes out and says you to the reader. But on some other level, I feel like it, it does address the reader directly because I was sort of trying to address myself directly. And even though the character is fiction, it's not really the way I am entirely. I wanted to write a book that would solve some problems. Well, yeah. And I mean, how close is it? You know, that's like, that, that also begs that question. I mean, it just, so much of the writing feels so raw. Like the sex writing in the book feels like particularly, um, blunt, you know, in a way, yeah. that I, in a way that I found refreshing and like, uh, you know, you're sitting there going, wow, this is really brave or this is, uh, or, or is this, uh, Sheila, you know, sort of like, uh, pretending to be braver than she actually is, you know, not that there's anything wrong with that, but you know what I'm saying? Like it, it made me ask that question. I think it's probably a natural thing that a lot of people, um, you know, who read the book find themselves asking. Well, what do you mean? Like what would be what would be brave and what would be well, not just, as brave? Like, I don't understand the No, I just, I guess I just, I guess I just mean like there's so much candor and like, it's just trying to parse like what's real and what's not. That's all that I really mean. And like, especially yeah. when it comes to like talking like about the intimate details of, of, uh, one sex life, you know, that's like such an obvious place to point to just because, uh, it's the kind of thing that most people aren't, uh, apt to talk about, especially in really honest terms. And so like, it just, right. you know, it makes you, it makes you wonder, um, but it's also really affecting too, you know? So I'm just curious to know, um, you know, you obviously could sense that you were approaching the line of fact and fiction. And when you decided to push off in a direction, um, that was fully fictionalized, like, did you understand why you were doing it? Do you know what I'm saying? Or was it all just intuition? Um, it was a lot of intuition and, and just thinking too, like thinking about the culture and thinking about, internet porn like what is this thing that we all <laughs> have in our I have no idea I have no idea what view. you're talking about I have no idea, no idea. I, I don't know if it's true but I think that it, it affects the way that people have sex to have this completely insane really really these really extreme depictions of I mean I think it's got to change people a bit to have to have such nutty like insane. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what it does, but I was thinking, but I wanted to take that in. Um, well, no, I mean, I think it's like, I don't even know if there's a way that anyone's really measured the kind of damage that it could potentially do, you know? Cause like I've, I mean, actually, you know what? I think there have been a lot of studies about porn addiction and stuff, but like I've talked to, I want to say I talked to somebody who was dating someone who had like a real porn addiction uh, and not on this program either, but like talk to a friend or somebody, I, I don't know, I can't even remember what it was, but, um, I remember having that conversation and like being like, are you serious? Like, this is a real addiction. And then, you know, I guess it, I guess it can happen. And if it gets to that level, then it's gotta be like really toxic. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm not even thinking 
yeah, I'm thinking less of porn addiction than like you're a 16 year old girl and then you're a 16 year old boy and you have sex and it's an early experience of sex and how is that different now that there's intern, you know, now that you've, if you've seen all these images before you've ever, like it's got to be different from what it was like 20 years ago. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. We read, I mean, I read Henry Miller and Marky Desaad and that stuff was, that stuff changed my brain, I'm sure. Right. It, and maybe and maybe it's no different to see it to see it in, on the computer. Maybe it's even more maybe it's even more disturbing to read about it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Well. Okay. So let's talk about the book then, uh, as it became, um, you know, a finished product, and you had a, at least a you know a finished draft, and you had a manuscript. Uh, can you talk a little bit about like the early? reads that you got on the book, like particularly from, um, your editor? Um, well, the editors came later. I, I showed it to a bunch of writers. I always show stuff to, to writer friends first. Um, and they were all really enthusiastic. Uh, I did end up showing it to an editor, my editor of, of Tickner. Um, he, he was just like, I've, he just said, I don't, I don't know what you're doing, and um, I tried to explain it to him as best I could, but it, none of my explanations were very convincing because at that stage the book wasn't really pulling it off. Probably, um, it was a very different book when I showed it to him than it is now. I mean, the, the, there was no sex in it. There was there was much less narrative. It, it was totally different. Um, so I can understand why he. Perplexed. Well, no, but timing is a big issue. Like, I'm actually grappling with that right now because I'm getting close to the end of a manuscript, and it's like, you know, I say close to the end, but I have to kind of put that in quotes because it's like, when when is it ready to show? Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, yeah, that's nerve wracking for me because I don't want to, you know, like there's like a weird impulse to get it in front of people, and then actually not, it's not weird, it's natural. You want to show something to people, and you want it to be done, but you know, you you don't want to go too soon. I know. I I remember I was talking to this writer I was at Yaddo and he was this old guy like 70 or something and he said oh yes I had my first book published with FSG and I thought I was set for life and then I showed them my second novel too quickly and they didn't publish it and ever since then I've I've never had a proper publisher and it was just such a horror story and I was sure that that was what was going to happen to me and I do think there's that question of if you show too soon to the wrong especially to an editor then are they just going to you know, ban you from for life from that, <laughs> you know, well, from their from that house. Or do you think they all talk from their respect? You know, maybe there's a blacklist. You know, like it'll, it's not it's not even just that imprint. It's it's like the entire world of publishing. Yeah, yeah. To but that editor told me just recently. He said he loves the book now, and so so he came around to it in the end. Yeah, but it's easy to say. Like it's getting reviewed in the New Yorker, and it's, it's all <laughs> fancy. It's a revisionist history. Don't buy it for a yeah, second. He has to say that. He has to say yeah. that. I don't know. I don't know. Like it, there is a question about how soon you show it, but I think that often you want to show something because you know that it's not done, and you want somebody to say that it is done. So I think that if that's your impulse, then probably better not to show it. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. It's like it's you know when do you step away from the canvas or whatever? Like it's it's really never done, but at some point you just quit. <laughs> I think it's when you start making it worse. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully you know that, you know, hopefully you make a difference, <laughs> but no, and yeah. like, and, and speaking of not being done and of, uh, tinkering with art, like you actually revised the American, the U S edition of this book. You had it initially published in Canada and then you wound up actually tweaking it a little bit before it published in the States. Correct. 
Yeah, I, I rewrote sections and and went through the whole thing actually, um, and and worked, you know did line edits. And yeah. and I mean, so obviously you felt like it needed to be improved. Yeah, I mean, even when I published it, I thought this is not this is not quite ready, but I didn't think it would ever feel ready, so I published it. Um, I thought that was just the nature of the book. And then when I had an opportunity to publish it again, I thought, well, maybe I can go back in and make those do those things that. Since it came out, I had a feeling of the things that I wanted to change. So it was a great opportunity to do that. Was and it, then it does feel done now. It so does. I was wrong. I was going to say, like, it, 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 was it like a big relief to get to kind of go in and give it a makeover? Um, yeah, it, 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 was, it was great. It felt really good because I felt so much more clear-headed than I had when I published it in Canada. When I published it in Canada, I still felt in the middle of that. Um, I didn't feel like I could step back far enough away from it to give it a proper, to 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 do, to do something, to do that kind of edit that like, where you feel like you're a master of the text. I still felt like I was submerged underneath it a bit. Yeah, you know that's so interesting to hear you say that because you know there's a part of me. It's like these dueling uh, voices in my head where I think there's something to the idea that it's a good i, it's good for the the work of art to have. Uh, to have you kind of expend all of this energy in in one big burst or in as compressed of a time frame as possible. Um, I don't know if I'm saying this right, but do you know what I, Okay, so on the yeah. one side, it's like you want to get all, like the time in your life that you're trying to capture or whatever it is. You want to sort of like pour all of yourself into it and get it down on paper so that there's a consistency to the energy and so that you don't, drag it out interminably and, and sort of make it overwrought and mess it up. But then there's the other side of me that thinks, God, if you can have the patience to kind of just let the thing flower and that you can get that sort of critical distance, you know, where you're the master of the text, as you say, um, is that the better way to go? I guess, I guess there's no right answer, but I don't know. It's so delicate. You need both, right? You need that sort of spontaneous feeling in the text, I think. And, uh, I don't think you want it. If you edit too much, you erase that. That's no good. Right. Um, I always, whenever I edit, I always keep the original, uh, the original writing of it, sort of beside it, and I always look back to the original, because often you edit and you think you're improving it, and then you look back at the original, and it's clear that you're actually not improving it. So I always have that beside the document when I'm editing it, or I pull it up, you know. Because I do think you can lose things. So what? So you have like an initial. You have you write like a complete first draft, and then you print that out, and then you have that on your desk while you do your revisions. Is that what you're saying? Well, I don't print it out, but I keep it on the computer, and um, it's not even like a, I have a complete first draft. But like I have the first time I wrote that scene. Let's say I have. I keep that. I just call it. You know, whatever I call a scene, and then I say original, and I just have that file so that I can always refer to it. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I sit there and like this is the thing with me, like that I'm also debating is that uh, I will sit there and like noodle with something on the same screen over and over again. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, and sometimes and you, like, you don't keep the original. I mean, I, it's like as I'm going, and then the day before, you know, then I'll I'll get up the next day and start to to work again, and I'll reread what I wrote uh, the day before, and I'll start to kind of like tinker with it. You know. Uh, well, I do that too. You, you don't? Are you saying you don't keep? You don't have the original, like the first, the first writing of it you don't keep that no now i'm thinking i should <laughs> yeah you just like yeah for sure because otherwise you don't know if you're making it worse oh god i just broke out into a sweat 
um, okay, so so let's let's talk then about um, the the aftermath of publication, both in the states and in Canada. I mean, this book has gotten a good ride. You must be pleased, right? Yeah. I mean, it got reviewed in the New Yorker. That's like that. That's some sort of. Uh, I don't know. Like when you get it's, it's James Wood. Uh, please tell me I got that right. I mean, he, yeah. he he reviewed it. When he reviews a book, that means something, you know, in the world of literature and stuff like that. So, like, what, how did you find out that that was happening? Well, they called me up and they said that uh, they called me up and they said that they no my my publicist called from the publishing house and said that the New Yorker wants to set up a photo shoot with you, and I think that I <laughs> and I you know I kind of. I didn't understand really why they, what was going on, um, because they don't usually shoot the author for a book review. It was really exciting and kind of felt crazy, and um, and I had no idea who had reviewed it or if it was going to be positive or negative. I assumed it was going to be positive because why else would they do the picture? So I was kind of su- surprised that it was it, it had the tone that it did. But that was, um, yeah, that felt like big news for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's okay. Okay, so take us inside this photo shoot. Like, where did that happen? Um, well, we were in an apartment. I was in New York for the month, and I was staying with various friends. So one of my friends, uh, actually the writer Gideon Lewis Krauss, I don't know if he read his book, um, A Sense of Direction, but I was staying in his apartment. So we did part of the photo shoot there, and then we did part of it um, in two separate locations in Manhattan, sort of like crossing the street, uh, over and over again, I'd cross the street and the photographer would cross with me and take pictures. And um, that's why the picture looks like it does. I mean, with those men in the background, they were just crossing the street at the same time as I was. Okay. And like, were you nervous about this? Like, are you comfortable being photographed? Uh, I wasn't nervous. It's He was a really good photographer. Um, so I didn't feel nervous. Yeah, it's weird. He like, a, I have a buddy who's a photographer, and he's got this like Zen thing where he can like set you at ease. You know, it's weird. Yeah, that's like a photographer. I guess he I kind guess. of felt like a surgeon or something. He just he felt so everything he was doing looked seemed so precise and so certain. This guy Ethan Levitas, and yeah, I just felt comfortable. Okay, and so and then the review, like, there's been some kind of you know, there's been some sort of. Uh, debate because James Wood, you know, there's a comparison going on, at least in, you know, the blogosphere and whatnot about uh, Ben Lerner's novel, Leaving the Atocha Station and your book. I don't know if you've seen any of this. Like, do you pay attention to that stuff where they start to get into kind of a gender debate or whether, yeah, a little bit. you know, like, how do you feel about that? Like, do you engage with it at all? Or do you just kind of look on it with like bemusement? Well, I've had to stop reading that stuff because it just makes me feel like shit, basically. Um, so I stopped looking at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, but you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it's. I think it's a smart thing. Like, if, if I could have the discipline to not read uh, anything about myself on the internet. Not that there's a lot of it out there, but you know what I'm saying. Like, that would... it just makes you feel bad because no one has, no one ever sees, and it's not a like a very humane environment. No. Well, no, I just, I, I, in fact, I was joking with a friend the other day that I want to start selling t-shirts that say the internet makes me feel bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause I really think it does. It's like something, it, it's sort of along the lines, like, you know, to draw kind of a weird wide circle, but it's sort of along the lines of, uh, the old, the whole internet porn discussion that we were having uh, a few minutes ago and like the, the effects of it. Like, I don't know if we fully understand what the internet's doing to us. Do you know? I think a lot of people probably have that, but, 
yeah. I, I spend I spend way too much time immersed in it and talking about it on this show. But uh, you know, it's just one of those things that I feel like uh, I'm not a hundred percent clear on. Yeah, it's very weird. But I think an author. I mean, I I have the same feeling as you. But then I was reading this these mem this Tennessee Williams memoir, and he talks about going to somebody's house, and he he's led into the library, and basically he's staying overnight, and he can look at any book he wants, and the book he takes down from the shelf is like who's who in the world. He's looking to see if he's in there. <laughs> so he takes the book down and he like flips to the index, and he sees that he's in there, and he goes to his entry and he reads it and they got something wrong about when he got a grant and he got so angry and it completely ruined his night because the year that they said he got the grant was actually the year that he was most poverty stricken. And, and you know, like even before the internet, like, people can still make themselves like just like, that's like Googling yourself instead of Googling the billions of other things you could possibly write. Right. He's got this whole beautiful library and he goes in and he like takes down who's who. Yeah, and, like, and, and it ruins his night. It, does Who's Who even still exist? Those books are sort <laughs> I don't of, know. Yeah, those books are sort of outrageous. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you might be right. Like, it just could be human nature, and this just happens to be, like, the latest, you know, permutation of something that's been going on forever, you know? Yeah, or you hear somebody talking about you in the next room, and you, like, you can't help but want to listen. Yeah. Maybe it's just the same thing. But, it, well, it's, but it's, it's, maybe it's just more convenient now. You know, there's just more, it's more expedient. You can easily always check at any point with your phone or your computer. You know what I'm saying? Whereas, like, yeah. who's who, you'd have to, you'd have to be, <laughs> you'd have to be in a, a proper library to track that. Yeah. Thing. Yeah, I don't know how, I wonder how it's going to change people. I mean, I've talked to a bunch of different writers and artists about this question. of like, do you look at what people say about you on the internet? And everyone basically says that they, at a certain point, decide that they have to stop because it just, you know, like your t-shirt, it just, it just makes you feel bad. Well, it's, and it's also sort of like, you ever, I don't know if you've ever done this, but when you Google anything related to like a medical condition, like you'll, you'll start to feel like you have like a pain in your chest or you'll feel like, uh, yeah. you know, and then you start Googling like chest pain or, you know, it's, it, it's a wormhole and it becomes... Uh, very scary, very quickly. <laughs> and is it like if you Google your name and then you see all the things that's written about you, you start to feel like you are that person? Yeah. Instead of the person you really are, you think, oh, I really am a, you know, I'm whatever they say. I'm sick. I've got a bleeding ulcer. Things are happening. But do you believe the stuff? That, like when people write, do people sort of write all and say all the same things about you and then you come to believe that that's you? Yeah, I mean, I think like I think it's hard not to be affected by it. I think if you know, it's sort of a test of character, um, you know, to make sure that you don't let something like that overwhelm you. But I think it's human to be affected by it. I, I would, I think you'd have to be lying to say that you could read something really nasty that's written about you um, and not feel feel bad about it, right? I mean, I, I don't know. It's, it seems kind of like, yeah. I can't believe that. I can't believe somebody could read something horrible about themselves and have no response. But I do think that there are different levels of response. Some people could be totally devastated by it. Other people could... Um, a twinge, like a little twinge in your body. Yeah, shrug it off. You know, it's like the, there's like that old Kingsley Amos quote that like a bad review spoils my breakfast, and a, but it never spoils my lunch. I think that's what it that's is. That's nice, that's nice. Yeah. Well, I kind of feel like... I kind of feel like when you read those really negative things that they're aimed at you in a way. Like, I almost feel like the person wants you to see them. Um, you know, it's not just for themselves or for an audience of whoever's reading that stuff. It's actually at the artist or at the politician or whoever they're talking about. They want that person to see it. Yeah. It's it feels like, personal. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's true, especially with the internet, because they feel like they might they might get you. In fact, it, and to acknowledge it in any way, especially if it's really mean spirited, would be not a good thing to do. As tempting as it would be, like, have you ever rebutted a bad inter- uh, a bad review? Have you ever actually like, you know, replied or like commented or anything on anything like that on the web? No. I- no, no, no. But I feel more defensive of other people. Like, like you brought up Ben Lerner. Like, I, I, I love his book. And when I, I was, I, I was reading his the reviews of it on Goodreads. I don't know why. It was just, and people are so, were. I just felt so wrong about it, and I really wanted to respond. And, and I felt really angry on his behalf, and really angry on the book's behalf. And I feel more like I want to respond if it's somebody else. Yeah, I love that book. Like. I think that book is I think that book is hysterical and just like like wicked, yeah. like really smart, you know, like un- yeah. unusually smart. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Um, so let's talk about uh, things that aren't books that might have influenced uh, your book because this interests me. Like I, I was reading an interview with you and you talked about the hills, uh, mm-hmm. which, which I'm a huge fan of, and you talked about Werner Herzog and you said them in the same sentence, which sort of made me extremely happy because I'm a big fan of both things. And I think that, uh, you know, at first blush, it might sound like two wildly disparate things, but I think there might be some sort of through line between them. Yeah, like, for sure. Like w- talk about why those kind, like, you know, the work, the work of Werner Herzog or a show like the Hills, um, you know, felt relevant to the writing of how should a person be? Well, I just like it. I, I, I never understand what the rules are when I watch a Werner Herzog movie and I, I didn't understand how they made the hills. Like I didn't understand where these girls, did they write the lines for the girls or did they listen to the girls talk and then write down their favorite lines? Like I just didn't understand how it was made. And I think, I think that's what excited me about that show. And that's what excites me about Werner Herzog and really anything that excites me. I think that that, I think I really love that when I can't figure out how it was put together um, if somebody is just writing a novel, I understand that they just took images from their imagination and, and put it down. And but th- these just felt so mysterious to me. It was like or there was a secret that I I couldn't unlock. Did you ever unlock it? I mean, did you do any sort of like research into the into the process of how the hills was made or anything like that? Did you? Well, get- <laughs> the most glamorous thing happened to me the other week, which was that the producer of the hills sent me an email on Facebook and said, I, I couldn't believe it. I, you know, it's so rare. To, I've never seen the, the name, the Hills come up in the New York times book review as an influence on a book. And I just wanted to say that that's really exciting for me. And I got your book and I, I wrote him. I was like, you have to explain to me how the show was made. So I've been emailing with him and, um, this guy, Andrew Perry and, uh, just get, I, now I'm learning, you know, it's better that I'm learning now than then, because I think that if I knew, if I knew then it wouldn't have been so exciting to me, but, it's so cool to to learn. Well, we'll share how because like honestly, like I'm a, this is the thing. I'm a huge fan of that show, and like I say that without. I mean, it's easy to to sort of say that kind of thing uh, with some irony. You know what I'm saying? Or mm-hmm. like to sort of like mock it while you like it or whatever. But like I truly find it like beautiful in some strange way, and there's something cinematic about it. And I, you know, I I don't know if I fully understand why I liked it so much, but I live in Los Angeles, and I think part of it was that it's set here and it's so beautifully photographed that like it almost makes me feel like, uh, you know, it's in a different city than the one that I'm in. Do you know what I'm saying? (laughs) It's almost like, it's like a surreal world. It's so, it's unusually well photographed for a reality show, I think, which is like part of the allure and it makes you feel like you're living in like another planet or something. But 
Um, what did you learn? Was there anything that you learned um, about how the show was made that you feel like might be applicable to, say, a future book or might bring into clarity things about uh, how should a person be that you might not have been aware of previously? I don't know. I was just really happy to hear that they all really loved working on it and they were really excited about it and that they spent so long on every shot. I mean, he said they 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 shot and edited. I can't remember the equation, but I think he said like they spent three times as long on every episode than a normal reality show. Like they really were trying to make something beautiful, and and they um, they put a tremendous amount of work into it, and they and it was a joy for them to work together. And he said it was very collaborative, and I was so happy to hear all that. Like they weren't cynical, in other words. Um, they were trying to make something interesting, and he he described how they how the show changed over the years because in the beginning they really were like looking at these girls' lives and trying to build storylines around it. But of course, as time went on, they had no lives outside the show, and right. so and so that they the process changed as the years went by. I think making like an oral an oral history of the hills would be interesting. Because it's yeah. it's like it's really meta, you know. Like it sounds like it was like this process of discovery for them, you know. Like they they sort mm-hmm. of learned what they were doing as they did it, which is similar to what you did, you know. And I guess it's mm-hmm. similar to what all you know writers go through. But um, I don't know. I just I get excited when everyone when anyone says they like the hills because I, I typically get laughed at when I mention that. It's a special show. I mean, I think it's a really special show. I mean, obviously, it's changed. I mean. I only saw the first couple of seasons. I'm sure in season six it was a different thing. But in the beginning, there was almost nothing that... It was like Beckett. You know, like nothing happened. But there was so much... We felt so much meaning. Like so much was going on between these characters. But you didn't... But there but, but there was no events, right? Yeah. It was just like girls talking at like over brunch. And like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was like, what's going on? Who's that? I forget what I read. I want to say I read something in like the New York Times where uh, the person made the argument that it was like, you know, the, the show owed a lot to like Antonioni or, you know, there was like all <laughs> these like high art comparisons made, which also made me feel good because there's something, I don't know. I, like I said, I, I guess I could just detect like a subsurface seriousness to that show that it wasn't getting credit for, you know? Yeah. And that was what was nice talking to the producer, like to realize that it's true. I mean, what, we weren't just projecting art onto it. It actually was made by yeah. people who were really careful and serious. And See, now I'm going to have this as ammunition. Next time somebody tries to refute <laughs> me, I'll be like, no, I talked to Sheila Hetty. She talked to the producer. <laughs> we, were, we were right all along. <laughs> yeah. I'm not crazy. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. Okay, so the the book is out. The book is getting reviewed. Uh it's getting reviewed well. I mean, on balance. Obviously, there's been some stuff that's uh not necessarily pleasing, but that's the case whenever a book gets reviewed widely. Like, do you feel a sense of satisfaction or does it, you know, cuz you know, obviously you you had success with Tickner too, but I feel like this book is sort of like popping more. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, of course. So, do you feel like, like how does it feel? you're there and you're essentially in it right now. Like, is it everything you dreamed it would be or is it? Well, I didn't dream it would be anything, but it is relaxing or like, it does feel good. I mean, yeah, it's, it is neat because you do want, you do want that. You do want people to read it and review it and talk about it. And, and it's like, I, I have, I didn't really experience that with the Tickner or the middle stories. And, um, I was writing it so I wanted it. I wanted it to have. Um, 
I wanted to talk to people now. Like with Tickner, I didn't care whether anyone read it, but I wanted people to read this book. And that was one of the things that I, I felt all along. And I'd never really felt that before. But I felt like I was writing for people living right now alongside me. So the fact that that's that people living right now alongside me are reading it is is good. No, it's a that, good feeling. Well, that's an interesting to hear you say that because it's not often that I hear an author say that, like with a past book, I wasn't as concerned about people reading it. Is that what you just said? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't care. I didn't write it for that. And yeah, it wasn't. Um, it wasn't one of the motivations. What was the motivation? It was more it was more for me to figure something out or to it was just a, my own puzzle, I guess. Right. It was like you cuz I, I I say that because it, I can relate to it. Um, you know, to have this sense like I talked to author friends of mine who uh very urgently want everyone to read everything they've ever written. And obviously right. obviously there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I felt with I especially feel with my novel, I have one book out and I'm like I don't necessarily want that. <laughs> you don't really want people to read it. Right. It's like, no, don't. I'm like, people always say, oh, I'm going to read your book. And I'm like, oh, no, don't do that. You know, and then they think it's like, <laughs> yeah. they think it's like false modesty. And it's like, no, it's really, I'm serious. Like, I, you know, please don't. <laughs> you know? And why don't you want them to? Uh, you know, I, I think that it feels really imperfect to me. I think there's some embarrassment that it's not as good as it should be. Or I was too young. I was in my 20s when I wrote it. You know, like, it, it's like some of that. And then it's also sort of. Um, I don't know. I, I think, I guess maybe like you say, it was my own puzzle. I was trying to work something out and it's this thing and, and it wasn't necessarily, uh, an urgent conversation with, right. the, with the reader, the way that maybe oh. how should a person be is, I mean, I, I get what you're saying, you know, that the difference between the two and I'm, I'm wondering now, like, do you feel like one approach to literature or to the writing of literature is better than the other? Like, do you think that there's something more, um, positive for you, uh, you know, as an artist to approach it with that, uh, perspective? Like I'm, I, I should only write a book if I'm in urgent conversation with the reader, or do you think it's okay to, you know, write a book that's a private puzzle that just happens to also be available in your local bookstore? <laughs> I think they're both legitimate and they both have their place. Like, I mean, if somebody was, if I was to give somebody a book of mine to read, I'd give them How Should a Person Be? Because I think Tickner doesn't have much pleasure for most readers. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be a, a pleasant experience for most readers. I think for some, it would be a more pleasant, more interesting experience than How Should a Person Be? But um, that's a very specific kind of reader. And so I think that, but I, I feel like that's an. You all, for me, I always want new challenges. So the challenge of trying to make something, this is why I wasn't thinking about style. Because if you're thinking about style, that's really about you and your puzzle and your own uh, something internal, I think. But if you're, I think, that's why I think I didn't want to think about style. I want to think about the world. And I hadn't done that with Tickner. So I think adding in the the challenge of speaking to the world was a, was the one I needed at that time. But like, I don't think that that has to be, that's necessarily a superior challenge. It was just, it could go the other way around, right? You could start out wanting to speak to the world and then say, well, let me see if, what if I, what if I do something that, that is not about anybody. It's just about what I, um, it's just, I don't know. 
it's hard to say what the opposite of that is. Because right. obviously, even when you're speaking to the world, you're also speaking to yourself. It's not like there's this binary, like speaking to the world, speaking to yourself. In both cases, you're speaking to yourself. It's just an additional person you're speaking to or an additional, you know, people you're speaking to. Was one book more pleasurable to write than the other? Was one approach, like, can you distinct? Yeah, How Should a Person Be was way more pleasurable. I didn't have any pleasure writing Tickner. Yeah. See, this is the, now I'm all screwed up in the head because the book that I'm writing right now, like there are moments when I like it and I like, really like it, which I think is normal. You'd have those moments where you're like, this is genius. And then yeah. most of it is just so damn excruciating, you know, like it's, it, it's like pulling teeth, but I have to do it. It's weird. You know? Yeah, that's good. Well, I don't think that that, but that's, you look, but probably what you look back on those times as, as the most pleasurable in retrospect, right? Those are always... Like we always make nostalgic the hardest the hardest things. Yeah, it's like childbirth. You look back on it somehow, like this, you know, horrific thing. I mean, you know, it's not horrific, but you know what I'm saying. Like horrifically uncomfortable, and then <laughs> somehow you 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 have to find nostalgia, like a nostalgic view of it, especially if you're going to repeat it. Uh, yeah, yeah, you got to forget. I think it's like going into labor and you have the baby, and then you forget the pain. Like I think I've, I know people who talk about that who have a second and third child. You know, you you sort of like have to forget what it was really like. I have to forget, and I didn't even have the child. Like I have to, forget, <laughs> yeah, I, have to I have to forget what I have seen. <laughs> um, okay, so let's talk. I want to talk about you. Uh, you know, your personal history. Like, where are you from? I know nothing about you in that respect. Like, are you you're, you're from Toronto? You said that earlier. Mm. Yeah, that's that's uh, born and raised. Um, I went to theater school in Montreal for playwriting and then studied um, at the at U of T uh, art history and philosophy. But um, most of my life, I've lived here. And what kind of childhood did you have? Was it like a uh, like what, what were your parents doing? Were they artistic people? No, my my mother and my father are both professional. Like they they're uh, they're not artists. My grandfather was a painter, but uh, I never knew him. Um, but I think because of that, my father, it was his father. He understood he had some, he had a lot of respect for, for art and, you know, there were good books in the house and, but I just was, uh, I was just an artistic kid. Like, like probably half the kids are, you know, Um, were you social or were you like what, you know, with the, the kid who was like up in her room, like writing a novel when she was nine? No, I don't know. Probably a bit of both. Like I had, I was putting on plays with friends and, um, I was, I did write when I was a kid, but I also acted. Um, I did commercials. I wanted to be an actress when I was younger. It was, I wanted, I did plays. Like you know, I was a, I was just a kid that did did all the enjoyed all the art, dance. Um, but that's not, but yeah, that's not necessarily a hundred percent typical for writers. You know, to have like also like a performance gene, or at least like an impulse or right. the ability to do that. Like, do you still have that, or has that receded as you've gotten older? No, I still have that. I mean, I kind of feel like with this book, it's a repressed theater, it's a repressed theater thing. Like not just in terms of the dialogue and the play, but like I miss the theater. I miss making a show. Um, I miss working on a project with other people. Like that's the great thing about doing theater is that you have these people and you're making the theater, you know, the show together. And with this book, it was it felt a bit like that. It was like okay, here's here's the other actors and um, it's it's social. It's a collaboration. Yeah. It's social. So, okay. So then, like, uh, your folks, like, what did, what did your folks do if they weren't artists? Uh, my mom's a pathologist and my dad's an, an engineer. Okay. And so, and then they supported you. Do you have siblings or anything? Uh, 
Um, I've got a younger brother. He does stand-up comedy. Um, I they didn't support me after I moved out, but they they did support me when I was growing up. Well, sure, yeah, no, but I mean, they just they weren't opposed to you pursuing the arts or pursuing something literary. And then uh, it sounds like your brother's also like artistic too. So they really lucked out. They got two of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, my brother went to law school and is actually like spent a year working as a lawyer, but I, I think that he he didn't like it. And in fact, he was told not to do his stand-up comedy um, because it was too, it wasn't the uh, image of, of a lawyer to be doing this stuff. His stuff is really hardcore. <laughs> What's his name? David, David Hetty. Okay. Can, can he you be can found anywhere? Give, yeah, yeah. Give him a plug. Yeah. Is he, is on he, Vimeo. You on... can see his stuff on Vimeo. I, uh, there's a set there, and it's very dark. And the first time I saw him do it, I was completely shocked and horrified and I couldn't believe this was coming out of the mouth of my little brother but it's now I understand him this is that's part of my understanding of him um that that's that that's part of him but I think for the whole family we were we were pretty shocked uh, at the darkness of his imagination <laughs> but it's not so different from mine I think that we I don't know what what happened to us um because we both have these sort of dark imaginations we had we had a lovely ha- a ho- lovely home well, but no, but this is the thing, okay? Like it almost, it doesn't always have to happen like this, but I think it often happens that if somebody uh, has like, uh, I don't know, it's like that that belief that it's okay to express these things. It's, it's you know, the people that have uh, unusual levels of candor or who have like this really dark imagination and they're willing to express it. I think a lot of times they do come from like happy families and their parents were... Um, supportive and kind of nurtured an environment where it was okay to be creative and they didn't feel like if they said something wrong or dark or weird or potentially risky that it would somehow affect um, how much their parents loved them. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like a safety right. issue. It's like, I think that... That's interesting. Do you know what I'm saying? That, that makes so maybe everybody has kind of a very dark imagination, but it's just not permitted to 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 go there. Um, like my father really really is an unconventional sort of person. He's sort of an eccentric man. Um, How so? He just doesn't... He doesn't really think... He doesn't think that there's anything inherently to respect about authority. Um, He's always questioning, and he was always trying to embarrass us when we were kids in public because, he, as he puts it, like he wanted us to feel like you don't need you don't need to be in the world in such a way that that cultivates the world's approval like you it's okay to be laughed at it's okay to be ridiculous so he was always he was always like that in public and trying to get us over shame or embarrassment um so give me an example like are we talking about like all of a sudden he would just like start quacking like a duck and i mean like what what would he do specifically do you have any like memories? I, I, I don't have memories of it, but it would be it would just be like it would be that kind of thing. Or I, I don't mean to make him sound like a ridiculous man. I think it was kind of rare, but he. I think that he would probably disdain, um, you know, gestures towards conformity for its own sake, um, ridicule it, and and I don't remember what weird things he did to embarrass us, but. But I, I, I had those memories until like my teens, you know, 
I don't have them anymore. I don't have a very good memory, but yeah, neither do I. No, but that's a, <laughs> I found myself really liking your dad. That sounds like a cool thing to do for your kids, you know? Yeah, he's a, he's a he's a fantastic father. So I take it he liked your book. I mean, because like this is another thing. It's the kind of book that um, you know some people might be reticent to share with their dad. You know, their yeah, he said he didn't read the sex parts. He didn't read that like the you know interlude. But he yeah, he said he skipped the sex parts, but he loved the book. He didn't really like my other books that much but he he did like this one a lot did he tell you that he didn't like your other books that much yeah he's like uh, i don't with the middle face like i don't really get it you know or uh, yeah he he told me that's good i like that too you know i, I kind of feel that way about my book and my parents but my parents have never been able to admit it to me but i could be wrong <laughs> you know? what do you mean what do you mean i think they're proud of it i think they were probably like what the hell is this kind of you know um, yeah, which might be a you know a, a, you know I think it is a very valid response, but um, yeah, you know it's just it's hard you know as a parent and, and frankly the book wasn't really they they really weren't the audience you know they aren't the audience right uh, so it would be sort of a stretch to imagine that they would love it but then I say that and I've had uh, you know I had like an eighty eight year old woman come up to me and tell me how much she liked it and you know it was authentic so you never know age is not necessarily a determining factor when it comes to who's going to respond to a book you know totally um, so it's and speaking of which like responses to this book have you been hearing from readers yeah yeah i um I get little notes and letters and and so on and uh yeah I've, anything creepy or weird i mean are you get because it's such a personal book like do you feel like people have this sense that they know you you know what i'm saying in a way that maybe, might maybe but not in a way that's weirded me out like i i expected a lot more creepiness but i haven't gotten any creepy letters directly there was somebody you know sometimes some some guy was like oh, i'm gonna he wanted to be my friend or something and he said that he's gonna get these four women to write me to tell me that i should be friends with him and i just and I was like, okay, well, I don't have to reply to that email, <laughs> you know. And I never got letters from those four women, so he was probably drunk when he wrote it. But that, you know, that I haven't gotten anything any weirder than that, which is nice. Yeah, it's, it's it's sort of nice to get a, a weird drunk, you know, a slightly weird drunken email from a guy who's promising that four of his girlfriends are going to email you. <laughs> yeah, trust me, I'm not creepy. You have arrived. <laughs> I've, I've asked all my women friends to write you and tell you I'm not creepy. <laughs> if you need four to confirm that. <laughs> You might be in trouble. He's really scrounging. Yeah, I felt like he was just like pulling them off the street or something. <laughs> um, okay, so let's let's. I want to try to track you know in a, in a circuitous way, like your bio. Like, how did you come into writing books? Like, you went to school for playwriting in Montreal, you said, and then you you went to the U of T for art history. Is that right? Yeah, and philosophy. And philosophy. And, and uh, I just started writing the middle stories when I was there, um, when I was at U of T, and. I didn't know that I was writing a book. I was just writing short stories, and um, and then I was sending them to journals, and no one was publishing them. And then I sent four of them to McSweeney's because I was so excited by that journal. And Dave Eggers published all four of the ones, all four of the stories that I sent him. And then, as a result of that, this publisher in Toronto contacted me. Her name is Martha Sharp. She was at a publishing house called Anansi who publishes me in Canada, um, House of Anansi. And they, uh, she just said, I, I'd like to do a book of your story. So I, I gathered up, I had so many stories, I gathered up 30 of them, and that became a book. So I wasn't really planning to write those, you know, in that form. They were just like stories on their own. 
And so once that happened, uh, I mean, like I guess before that happened, were you were you conceiving of yourself as a as a as an author? Was that the like the path that you were on, or were you just doing this because you like to write stories and you couldn't stop yourself? Do you know what I'm saying? Like how much? How much of? I was trying to become. A, I was trying to make myself into. I was trying to write. I was trying to learn how to write. I was. I was pretty serious about it. I can't remember if I thought. I'm good. I think I thought. Well, maybe the ideal thing is to have to write five or six books. I, over a lifetime. I think that was in my head. I was thinking about James Joyce, and I was like, he published the right number of books. Yeah, I've had that thought, too. You know, like, or I think about uh, filmographies, too. Like, Stanley Kubrick was not uh, super prolific. You know what I'm saying? He kind of took his time. Paul Thomas Anderson's doing that, where it's like, you have to sort of wait, you know? Yeah. Uh, And there's something, I think, sort of great about that, because you know when, or you you think you know when when they've got a movie coming out that you're going to be really getting something that they need to say or something that they really spent time on. I don't know. Yeah, but then there's the Woody Allen model, which also is kind of exciting. It's like, yeah, you just make a movie a year. It's just what you do. Yeah. And there's there's something workmanlike and beautiful about that approach, too. Yeah. I mean, do you feel like... Even though the movie... <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like his movies have gotten fairly uneven, though. I mean, I guess that's just, the, sure. that's just the way it goes. But he likes to do it, you know, and, and people pay him to do it. So why not, I guess. Yeah, and to hell with the audience. Like, he's doing it for himself, and that's what's sort of admirable about it. He's doing it because that's how he likes to live. Yeah, but, you know, okay, so this brings up another sort of tangent that I went on recently. It's like when you see a musician play, uh, you go to a concert, and I'm thinking of Bob Dylan in particular, um, or just as one example. But he's one of those guys who, like, plays his songs, but he only, he always plays them in like weird arrangements that you don't recognize in like a brand new voice and like with a new accent. And he's sort of keeping it interesting for himself at the expense of the audience. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, but he has no rights. Say again? The audience has no rights. Like they have no claims on the artist. Yeah, I guess so. But I just feel like they're, they're, they're paying his bills. I mean, you know, theoretically. But they don't have to. That's, that's, that's their choice. Right. I guess so. I just kind of feel like, God, man, people just want to hear like a Rolling Stone. You know? Yeah, people can go fuck themselves. Yeah, right. You know? He just doesn't care. You know, I think like I'm too, I think maybe I'm too emotionally needy and people pleasing. Like maybe I would, <laughs> I'd be like, just give them the hits. We'll just give them what they want. You know, we want them to go home happy. You know? like, um, and I, I, like, is that how you would be? Or would you be like, fuck them? I'm playing it at like in slow motion with like a high reedy twang, you know? Well, I think that's the ideal. I don't know how I'd be if I was a musician, but I think that I think I'd respect that. Y- you know, I respect it. Yeah. Um, okay, so you get out uh, of school. You've got these stories. They're published by McSweeney's. Um, you've got a book. It coalesces, uh, and then you start to work on Tickner. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so now, how are you working? Like, what is your day to day? And like, how? You know, like, how disciplined are you? And is it, like, an everyday militant up at, like, 5 a.m. kind of thing? Or how does it work for you? Um, I just I just work all the time. I mean, I, it's not really discipline. It's just uh, it's, it's just what I like to do most. So I, I, like, I like sitting at my computer. I have to force myself. I've got to remind myself to go for a walk every day. Like, I just, I like being at my computer. I like sending emails to my friends. I like reading emails from my friends. I like writing. I like editing. Like, I edit interviews with The Believer. I just like, I like being there at my computer. So, you know, if I have to do errands, maybe I'll spend the day doing errands. I don't really have a schedule. Um, It's just really organic, I guess. Uh, I just work all the time, and, and I I just do what I like to do, you know, and I, I, I do things, I try to make money and, 
because I have to. <laughs> you know, it just all folds together. How do you, how do you make money? Like, are there side projects or like editing projects that you do? Is that what it is? Or well, I make money from my books, and I make money from editing at the Believer, and I I do you know. I write things for people, and they pay me money to write them, and just in those usual ways. Okay. And I had I had temp jobs on and off through my twenties, but you know, our, I'll get you know, there's grants uh, in the Canadian, there's Canadian, there's arts funding in in Canada, so there's all sorts of different patchwork. What is it? What is it? Yeah, what, what do you call this? Arts funding. <laughs> yeah, we have that here in Canada. You do? Oh, weird. <laughs> so they, that means they what? They just give artists money to make art. Yeah, don't they do? They don't do that. I don't you guys have the NEA? Yeah, we have the NEA. And, and you know what? Like, I should, I should actually, uh, to counterbalance a little bit, I should say that like I'm just not as diligent as I should be in like searching out those kinds of opportunities. Like, there are some writers I've, I've met tons of them who are like really, really good at getting their hands on free money. You know, right? And uh, I think it's a little bit just requires a little bit of work and hustle. You know? Yeah. Right. Um, so what's next for you? Like, what are you, what are you working on now? Like how, how are, you know, are you just kind of like going through the publicity cycle for this book before you get started on something else? Or are you already working on the next thing? Um, I have a bunch of little things that I'm working on and then, you know, and then, uh, and then we'll sort of, we'll see what happens. What do you mean? Like, like short stories or, or like magazine projects or something? Yeah, just yeah, like little things that have piled up over the last while. So I, I mean, I was away from home for the last two months. I wasn't really able to do any work. So I, I just got home two weeks ago. So now I'm, I'm going. I'm just catching up, I guess. So what, you were just out on book tour. Yeah. What was the best stop? Do you have any like ex- unusually memorable experiences out there? I had a fun time in, in most of the places I went. Like I, I, I hung out with some really fun people in San Francisco, and same thing in. Portland and same thing in Seattle. Like I had, a, I had a really good time actually. Um, not necessarily because uh, I was on book tour, but because I managed to meet meet people in every city. And I have I had friends in LA that I got to see that I hadn't seen in a while. And yeah. And then what about uh, what about like movie and television stuff? Has there been any like optioning of this book? I mean, it sort of seems like it could potentially be um, the foundation for an interesting like series or, or film. Yeah, who knows? I mean, there's been, I'm sure, you know, little hints of that, but I, I don't know how any of that's going to turn out in the end. So nothing, nothing official has happened. No. Okay. Well, I'll tell you, um, I think it's a great book, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me about it, and I congratulate you on all the success. It must be very exciting for you. <laughs> Thanks very much. Yeah, it was fun talking to you. Okay, you guys, there you have it. That's the program that is Sheila Hetty. Go get her book. What a delight she is. The book is called How Should a Person Be? It is available in the United States of America in hardcover from Henry Holt. You can find Sheila on the web if you want at SheilaHetty.net. She's also on the Facebook. Uh, This program has a website. It's OtherPeoplePod.com. It has a Twitter feed at OtherPeoplePod. I have a Twitter feed at Brad Listy. You can read my tweets. This program has a Facebook page, and if you want to email me something, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And I think that's pretty much it. I think that's basically the gist. I am now going to go outside and move around, perhaps, in a very pedestrian, average, uh, and increasingly middle-aged manner. Please remember that Jack Kerouac died of a gastrointestinal hemorrhage from cirrhosis of the liver, and that Bertrand Russell, at the age of 76, survived an ocean plane crash 
in which a number of other passengers died. Thank you so much, you guys, for listening. I really appreciate it. Subscribe if you haven't done that yet over at iTunes. It's free. Do that at Stitcher, too, if you're a Stitcher person. It's also free there. And if you happen to be an extremely fast human being, if you happen to have world-class foot speed, please remember to share your gift with the world and go sprinting through your local shopping mall. (laughs) 